0: I'd like to read a passage from John 17, 20 through 23. Jesus praying for all believers. He says this, My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and I. So he's praying for us. That's a pretty profound thought. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me i've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one i and them and you and me so that the world may be brought to com- so that they may be brought to complete unity then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me before we get into the end of titus Incredibly significant, of of significance, you and I understand the beauty of what we did right here. I think about it of all the differences represented just in this room, different personalities, different backgrounds. um, Some of you came to Christ maybe six months ago, some of you came to Christ 60 years ago. We've all had different levels of studying in the scriptures, we've all had different experiences. With all those differences, in that moment right there, none of them mattered, did they? Who cared? We had one focus, Christ. We unified around the gospel message, as Jay shared so wonderfully from the scriptures. That's what we focused on. That's what we celebrated. That's what we shared. That's what Jesus prayed for. So as I read these verses, as we conclude our study in Titus, I want you to remember throughout this the beauty, the power of unity. Unity that we share around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you remember that, it's going to really give context to what Paul's talking to Titus about. Remember that Paul is writing this letter to Titus because there's a lot of new believers in this island of Crete. And he's writing this letter to Titus. He says, Titus, this is what I need you to do. Here's what, how we need to set up this church. It's full of babes. There's others there who are coming in, and, and they're not so mature. And so Titus, here's some instruction of how to lead this church. He's talked about a lot of different things. But let's look at these final verses, verses 8 through 15. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently So that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and are profitable for men. But shun foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Diligently help Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way so that nothing is lacking for them. And let our people also learn to engage in good deeds, to meet pressing needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. It's really important we recognize the place the local church has in the plan of God. As seen from this epistle, the local church is called God's very own people. That's our identity. That's what we unify around. We are God's very own people, purchased with His shed blood. That's who we are. And because of the privilege of being God's very own people, we also have a corresponding responsibility. That's why not only we... That's not, that is, we not only live individually in such a way that people know that we belong to God, but we live that way corporately as his children. It is a pressing responsibility to be a member of the church of Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, his solemn final words to Titus. The apostle speaks really forcibly here. Because it's a serious thing called division in light of the context of the beauty and power of unity. So Paul's very concerned, and he speaks forcibly, and Titus, don't mess around here. You need to lead my people, and here's why, he says. Well, how do these divisions come about? Verse 9, I mean, verse 9 says it really, really well. First of all, what do we mean by division, and how does it come about? Well, issue issues raised in verse 9, the word controversies. It has its roots in the word for to seek. Now, notice the adjective, foolish. Here are some people who are just looking to disagree, they're starting a controversy. Now, it's one thing for people to see two sides of an issue, but when they're foolish controversies, you have seeds of division. Why is it foolish? Because it sidetracks people from the gospel. It sidetracks people from that mission in which we're called to. And it ignores unity. An emphasis is introduced. When Paul wrote Titus in Crete, he also in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 4 wrote Timothy in Ephesus. He pointed out that they were going to have trouble with this thing called endless genealogies. What were those? <laughs> what was that all about? Well, there were certain teachers who came. And they take certain Old Testament genealogies and they would insert their myths in the middle of them. Oftentimes, they inserted themselves, fictitiously, to somehow get some type of credibility for a hearing. And so you'd have a teacher saying, you know what, there's this genealogy of, let's say, Peter. And I have family in the middle of that. When well, they didn't. And the only reason they said it was that they would have some credibility. And so they were doing this with the genealogies all the time, adding their myths and lying about their place in them. Paul says, This is foolish. These are foolish. It's nothing to do with the gospel, it's nothing to do with building unity. And when the emphasis, fads, self proclaimed prophets become pushed to the lengths that they can no longer be substantiated by Scripture, they can fuel the vision. And people seek to become a law unto themselves. They have no concern for the beauty and the purity and the power of unity. Look at the word in verse 9. Another word pops up, strife. See, people getting these controversies and emphasis and getting thoroughly upset about it, instead of living in harmony, instead of uniting about what they're supposed to be uniting around Christ, people got themselves absorbed with the issues of that day. Apostle says, watch out for that. Titus, watch out. In 1 Corinthians three, one through four, Paul saying to this church, who was having similar problems, verses one through four of 1 Corinthians 3, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of flesh. As to babes in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there's jealousy and strife, there's our word, strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am Paul, and another says, I am Apollos, are you not mere men? I mean, Paul's saying, in the church of Jesus Christ, we can respond in ways that are spiritually immature. He calls them worldly, fleshly ways. They're purely secular reaction to a spiritual situation. And if you respond to these emphasis or these particular concerns in an unhealthy way, in an inadequate, immature, spiritual way, the result is you're going to get all kinds of strife. Instead of addressing the problems... People begin to be attacked. And people are attacked because they're identified with the problem in some way. And then personalities rather than problems are attacked. That's what happened at Corinth. That's what Paul's concern didn't happen at Crete. It's no surprise it happens today. Verse 9 brings up another word disputes. That means fights and swords are drawn. Bad place to be. And if I could be honest, it's an utter disgrace to the church of Jesus Christ when that happens. Because it ignores the purity, the beauty, and the power of unity that Jesus prayed for. Well, why do divisions exist? I think three words really Practically help us understand it. First of all, differences are inevitable. There's differences in scripture knowledge, there's difference in experience. There's spiritual babes here, still wrestling with some of the flesh. You have those who walk with Jesus longer. You have some maybe who are a little prideful about their position and different things. You have all this people at all these different places with all these different personalities, with all these different experiences. Differences are inevitable. Difficulties are probable. Difficulties come because positions are not clear. We need to face up that people don't necessarily say what they mean, and at times people don't hear what you say. Positions aren't clear. Perspectives can become clouded. Personalities become involved. And there's really two lenses we can often look at. We can look through a lens of dignity, and we can look at each other through that lens and look at each other and say, I know this person's good I know they love Jesus. I disagree with them. But as you look through the lens of dignity, we see clearly. But there's another lens. It's a lens of depravity. And isn't it interesting when there's a disagreement, we tend to look at others through the lens of depravity, but when we look at ourselves, we switch lenses through the lens of dignity, don't we? We're tempted because they're wrong. Careful what lens you look at each other through. Matter of fact, I encourage you to throw away the lens of depravity and don't even pick it up anymore. And look through the lens of dignity. Parties are formed, unfortunately. In Corinth, there was an Apollos party. There was a Peter party. There was a Paul party. Parties were formed. And when that happens, the energy in the church is spent in parties combating one another. Not in building up his body and proclaiming the gospel. And because of those two things, because of the fact that differences are inevitable and that difficulties are probable, divisions then become possible. When a church gets to the place where parties have been formed, there's a strong possibility that the diverse point in which they were interested becomes more important than the unity of the body. If you don't believe me, consider election. Voters become, can become very single-issue voters. It's also possible in the Church of Jesus Christ that people can produce single-issue reactions. And when these are produced, the people are no longer interested in the body as a whole. Their sole concern is this issue. There's another factor. And sometimes when we get into these situations, egos become involved. Pride is ever knocking at the door. Our individual pride can become more important than the corporate good. When this happens, you get verse 10 and 11. Reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. Wow. I mean, why? Why are factious people so destructive. Why does Paul say, listen, once, warn them once, warn them twice, man, if, if, if they're not responding in repentance, you need to reject them. That's harsh. But remember the context. The unity Jesus brought is beautiful. It's pure. It's powerful. And Jesus would say to us, his bride, And to anyone in, don't mess with my bride. Because that's what I'm building. I'm building something beautiful. And so Titus Paul says, you need to take this seriously. There are those who are coming in and potentially could, who are going to seek to disunify my people. And the reason factious people are so destructive is Christ's body becomes amputated. If you identify with a body of believers and choose to become part of a division in that body, you're inflicting an amputation on that body. A whole group is cut off like a limb. Your involvement affects the whole. And without being gross, if there was a limb that was amputated, and you had the amputated limb here, and you had the rest of the body here, who's hurting? Who's in pain at that moment? The body, right? The limb's not but the body is. You see, factious people need to be rejected after warnings because Christ's body is amputated. Christ's cause is also misrepresented. There are plenty of people who are ready to be critical about Christians, about the church of Jesus Christ. Christians have given unbelievers all kinds of opportunities to misunderstand who Christ is, what his church is, what Christians stand for. We should never give our critics an opportunity to find fault with us. Paul says to Titus, you need to warn these, peop- these factious people, these people causing divisions. Warn them once, warn them twice. But listen, if they're not going to respond, you need to take this serious because the cause of Christ is misrepresented. And then Christ's followers are humiliated. Because when it comes to a fight, usually someone wins and someone loses. But when it comes to the Church of Jesus Christ, everyone loses. And even more, the lost lose. They don't get an accurate representation of what Christ can do in a body. Everyone loses. Christ's followers are humiliated. One side of a division Paul refers to may be completely justified in the way they act, but all the members Are members of the body of Christ, and so Paul says, "Be very careful about this whole business of division. Be very—you see—you can be right, but you can be wrong about the way you go communicating how right you are, because there's a lot at stake." Paul says, "Christ's followers can be humiliated." It's fascinating being a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, because there's always differences. There'll always be differences. But if we're not careful, they'll produce difficulties, and if difficulties aren't handled properly, there'll be division. When do divisive people need to be addressed? When specifically do leaders, because Paul's writing to Titus, and predominantly getting leaders in place—it's part of the context. How does this to be addressed? Church discipline is the way this is done. It's supposed to be loving first and foremost and decisive towards a divisive person. But the question is, when is church discipline necessary? There's at least three answers. One is when people disrupt the building of the body. There are times when members of a congregation, for whatever reason, seem to apply themselves to the tearing down of what other people are trying to build in the name of Jesus Christ. They should be dealt with patiently and carefully with a view to understanding why they are behaving in such a manner. But these folks can demand far more attention than they deserve. And a time will come when they are presented with some straightforward alternatives. We must be mindful of the whole body in this significant thing called unity. Because what Jesus prayed for was that you and I would experience that which is beautiful, is pure, is powerful. Unity. So when people disrupt the building of the body, they need to be addressed. And when practices corrupt the life of the body, they need to be addressed. There's an increasing number of cases where people in the body have been ensnared in immoral situations or financial corruption. This can become deeply embarrassing to all concerned. The hope is it will just go away and maybe silence is golden in those points, but if those decisive actions allowed to continue... Or this uh, corruption, man, it's a black mark on the name of Christ. So there's times that corruption within the body needs to be dealt with. We can't turn a blind eye. That approach is not good. There's a third reason. When problems interrupt the ministry of the church, Paul admonished all believers to be at peace with each other. Romans 12, 18. But think about it, it was also Paul who confronted Peter about his perspective of the Gentiles and his problematic behavior. Was he being self-contradictory and saying, be at peace, but then approaching Peter? On the surface, it almost seems like it. But there was a time that Paul understood there's a lot at stake here. I need to talk to Peter, and I need to address what's going on. It was hindering the work of the ministry, It was interrupting the ministry of the church. And Paul said, I can't ignore this. I need to address it for the sake of the ministry. In all ministries, there is the possibility that similar decisions will need to be made. But like all disciplinary issues, they are by no means easy. They require the greatest of care. The discipline Titus is required to administer is related to a brand, really a social ostracism, when he says reject. It would be deeply humiliating, devastating in the days of the early church. Although difficult, compounded by transferring to another church, legal threats, there are many who are treated lovingly and firm who do respond. And what a beautiful thing that is. And as a result, they come through the experience richer, more mature. And the church is built up. And people can see the beauty, the purity, the power of unity which Jesus prayed for. Paul gives some concluding remarks, I think, that tie in so well with what we're talking about. Verses 14 through 15. Because how do we avoid being divisive? And what can we do on the front end? So we don't get to a place where we let the difficulties and differences result in division. How do we pursue unity? One, he says engage in good deeds. I mean, seek to bless people. Look to meet needs. Put time into this. And he even uses a word I think is really good because division is very unfruitful. And he says meet personal needs. That they may not be unfruitful. In other words, bear fruit. Engage in that which will bear fruit. That's a good exhortation. Don't waste your time in division. Don't waste your time in tearing down. Why don't you invest in good, good deeds which build up. That's a good word. And this second one, I can't emphasize enough. Walk in grace. Can I call everyone here to that? Can I call each of you to walk in grace? Can I call each of us to say, you know, we're going to have a lot of differences of opinion, and that'll always be as long as we're uh, walking this earth, but can I call you to walk in grace? Can I call you to remember when all the differences come that when we came in that moment to communion, and we do, there was one focus, the grace of Jesus Christ, and we're all level at the cross. Can I call you to that? Can I call you to treat one another with that way, with looking through the lens of dignity? To say, you know what, we're at odds here, and and, and I have a choice of running, but, but that's not what I want to do, because I value you. And I want us to experience the beauty, the purity, and the power of unity that Jesus prayed for. I want to call each of us to walk in grace. It takes all of us. And when we do that, what Jesus prayed for will, will happen. The world will take notice when grace is in operation. Let's live together as those saved by grace. Let's not place ourselves above or as distance from one another. Let's live in harmony. And it can be hard work, I get it. You see, but that's what God's very own people do. We live together in such a way that Jesus' prayer becomes evident as you and I walk and enjoy and work hard at building up that which is good, beautiful, pure, and powerful, unity. Let's pray. Lord, there wasn't just a couple times this week I, my mind didn't think back to the journey we've had as a church and the challenges. But what you seem to place on my mind this week in, in increasing measure was you're not done with us. That you call every single one of us who name the name of Jesus as our Lord to walk in unity, Lord, to orient ourself, our decisions, our choices, our mindsets around Your death and resurrection to pay for our sins and bring us into what You're building, Your church. Might that be our orientation? Lord, might that be our focus? I need only look at myself, Lord, to know the many times that I really wanna be right. Too much so. Work in me, work in my brothers and sisters, that we would have a greater passion, zealousness, and a firm commitment to walk in grace with one another. We need your teaching on this Holy Spirit. We need your conviction. We need your help. We need your power. But God, what excites me and enthralls me is as you're building us, as you continue to knit us together here at Elam, in this place, right here in this moment, I know you're going to use us. I know, and I don't always know how, but I know, God, that somehow you're going to knit us to the degree that people are going to be able to see the beauty, the purity, and the power of what you're building, your church. Might we all live that way and pursue that unity to the praise of your name. And God's people said,